0: We're in Daniel chapter five, motoring through this book. Another thing my son Myron does with our Google hub is he will ask it to tell him riddles. they will say, hey, Google, tell me a riddle. And so I'll listen in on those. I wrote a couple down, see if you guys can get these. Here's number one. What has lots of keys but can't open a door? Piano, Piano yes, very good. I always start with an easy one. So here's another one. Okay? David's father has three sons. Their names are Snap, Crackle, and David. David. <laughs> David's father has three sons. Yeah. <laughs> For some of you. <laughs> What's more useful, broken? Eggs, yes. Excellent. I was gonna say smartphones, but that might be not so much. Okay, what do you get when you cross a dog and a phone? A golden receiver. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) So cheesy. Okay, so Daniel chapter five has a riddle in it. And it's a riddle that's very sobering. It's not funny. It's actually quite quite harsh of a riddle. So we're gonna kind of look at that. It's gonna launch us into what I actually wanna talk about. So Daniel five, verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Okay, so we'll look at this a lot more on Wednesday. Belshazzar is not actually the king. His dad is the king, but his dad is out of town. And when his dad is out of town, guess what the son does? throws a party, right? This is not some new phenomenon to the 21st century. This has been going on for as long as dad's had sons, right? So dad's gone, he throws this massive party. In the middle of his party, the police don't come to bust it up. Here's what happens, a hand appears. Look at verse five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. So all of a sudden, like Adam's family style, the thing appears and it starts to just write. It's where we get the term, the writing on the wall, right? It's an ominous, bad thing. So it writes out this riddle. In are called all the pros, the CNN pundits, the, the talking heads, they come in, They can't interpret the riddle. Nobody knows it. Finally, the queen mother, probably Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, she's very old at this time, comes in and says, there's a guy. He's with your dad or your grandpa, really. And he could interpret dreams and riddles. Call him in. His name is Daniel. So Daniel comes in. When he comes in, the first thing he does is he preaches a sermon to this wayward son. It's awesome. And then he interprets. The dream, or the riddle. Look down at verse 24. Then from his presence, God, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation. Here's the riddle. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Woo, bad news, bad riddle. There's a lot of wisdom in each one of these little things. I'm gonna look at one this morning and it's this word many. And the word many is repeated. Whenever in the Bible you see a word repeated, guess what that means? Super important. Because scrolls were expensive. Real estate was expensive on a scroll. It took a lot of money, a year's wage to make a scroll. So you did not waste words. So when a word is repeated, it's the way of God saying, this one is really important. Many, numbered. Your days, Belshazzar, have been numbered and they're coming to an end. And verse 30 tells us that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Numbered. Do we number our days well? Listen to me on this. If you live every day as if it is your last day, one day you will be right. (laughs) Wait for it, it comes. (laughs) And that's an important way to live. Here's why. When we keep in our minds our frailties, our weaknesses, our limitations, our lacks, when we keep that in mind that this time is a finite gift, it actually allows you to live a wiser life. It's why Moses would say in Psalm 90 verse 12 teach us to number our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. Teach us to live in such a way that we know it's finite so that we live wisely. It's why James the half brother of Jesus would say in James 4:14 4, he would say life is like a vapor. It appears a short time and then disappears. It's finite. Keep that in your mind. Learn to number your days. So how do we do that? How do we make sure we don't live like Belshazzar who blew it and his time was cut short? How do we live wisely? So here's the launching. Turn with me, if you would, to I think one of the best texts in the New Testament that tells us, here's how you live wisely. And it gives us some warnings about don't do it this way. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, And look at verse 16, it says this. If you have an old King James version, it will say, redeem the time, my version says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Kind of cryptic there, huh? So whenever you're asked to do something, you should know two things about it, what you're to do and why you're to do it. If you only know what to do and that's it, then you're just a robot. You're just carrying out robotic stuff. If you know why to do everything, but you actually don't do anything, I would call you a teenager probably. (laughs) You need to know both the duty and the desire, what you're supposed to do and why you're doing it. It's both of those. We have those both in this little verse, right? Here's the command, make the most of your time. Here's the reason why, because the days are evil. Isn't that a strange motivation? There's all kinds of motives for why we do what we do. We love it, getting power, getting money, right? Compassion, nagging, the most powerful motivation known to man right, by far, right? There are motivations, but I've never heard of this motivation because the days are evil. Ever go to the gym and working out? Somebody says, hey, why do you work out so much? Because the days are evil. (laughs) Oh, bro, why are you mowing your lawn? Because the days are evil, right? It's a very strange motivation. And the way most people interpret like evil days in this verse is this. This is the predominant way. It's this, that somehow today, the day that we live in today is the most evil day ever. That right now, our culture, right now, our morals, right now, the fabric of our society is the worst ever. Ever heard that? It's pretty common. I disagree with that. You know why? Because I read history. Read history. We got it really good right now. No, I'm not saying it's perfect. when I was heaven till heaven. But man, it's been a lot worse, a lot more immoral, a lot more perverse, a lot more wicked. In fact, in Paul's day, it was more wicked than it is today. Right? So I don't agree with that. And then the people that kind of believe in this, they're always pining for a day that like the average lifespan was 42 years. And you live your whole life with like intestinal parasites. And you finally died of like leprosy or polio or something like that. It's like, really? You want to live then? And if this is what it means, if it's really, this is the worst time ever, how does that motivate us to live better? Because if these are the most evil days ever, you know what the motivation for me is? God, just kill me. Just take me home then. I don't wanna be here. This is the worst, most evil time ever. Take me home, right? Or or do we just become grumpy old people that are always like cursing technology,
1: Like I hate the internet and I
0: hate smartphones and I hate my VCR and I hate this, and right? I hate Amazon Prime. Like I hate getting my packages in two days. It's the worst. I want the Pony Express back. I want to wait five weeks for my stuff. (laughs) Uh, It's weird to me. So you can probably tell I don't agree with that translation or that interpretation. Here's what I think evil days are. And you can actually look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 where it really makes this clear, uses the same phrase. I think the evil days, it's this. It's Paul, he's old at this time, he's 50, which 22,000 years ago, 50 was, you are an old dude. Cause the average lifespan was about 50. So he'd be like 80 now in, in, in terms of, of lifespan. So he's an old guy and it's Pastor Paul knowing something about life. That the cycle of days, weeks, months, years, decades, it does something to us. It does something that he calls evil. It lulls us into this kind of like, huh, right? So if you're older and you're talking to somebody younger, what do you often tell them? Then look out, time flies. What are you saying? Beware of evil days. Or if you're a parent that has a little bit older of kids and you see a new parent with a brand new baby, what does the International Fraternity of Parenting tell you you must say to that parent? They grow up fast, right? Look out. They grow up fast. It's you saying the same thing. Right now, they're in a crib crying for milk. Tomorrow, they'll be crying for your keys to the car. Okay, that's coming for you. And why do we say that? Because we know there's something about the evilness of days that lulls us into this kind of lethargy. And so it's the warnings. If you just back up a couple of verses, it's the warnings. Verse 14 says this, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So I see in this three warnings that help us to number our days. Warning number one, is you can live unaware, and it's this little phrase, awake, oh sleeper. That there's a way to live life where you're just kind of unaware. So here's what I found with kids. Just watching my kids grow up, I've got a five-year-old and i got an 18-year-old right now. When my kids were little, it was very hard to get them to bed. Now that my kids are older, it's very hard to get them out of bed, right? Now what happened in just this little span of time? Something changes in us. Maybe here's the best illustration I have. It's when my son Elijah was two. My wife was out of town. I had the four then. I didn't have Myron then, so we just had four. We had a a day on town, so we're just kind of driving around, eating, doing stuff. We go to the pharmacy, get a phosphate. 25 cents back then. The good old days. Oh, (laughs) And then a hot dog, you know, and we just had a great time. And I could see that my two-year-old Elijah was starting to get tired. So I'm like, okay, well, we better head home. So I'm starting to put him in his car seat. And we're gonna head home. And Elijah looks at me at two and just says this, dad, I'm not sleepy. I've learned very early, you don't argue with your kids about sleep. It's like, okay, no, fun, no problem, right? Because I was driving my Volkswagen van. And Volkswagen vans are so amazing because they have this incredible thing where they release just enough exhaust to make you go to sleep without killing you it's just german engineering at the best man like yeah so i just knew the volkswagen will do what it's supposed to do we just gotta wait now so we get in and, and we start driving and of course he falls asleep and as i'm driving i hit this really sharp corner on clover lawn headed home and just the the rocking of the van woke up elijah he looked at me and he says dad i'm not sleepy I't <laughs> <laughs> right back asleep Now, why is that? Why do little kids fight sleep so much? Because they don't want to miss anything. The evilness of days hasn't hit them yet. The Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It hasn't hit them yet. And they have this expectation that something cool might happen. And it's, ah, yeah. And because of that, they don't want to go to sleep. But something happens as we age, we start looking for opportunities to go to sleep. Like in the middle of a sermon, that's a good time to go to sleep, <laughs> right? It's a change. And so the Bible actually screams at us here. Romans 13, verse 11, wake up. First Corinthians 15, wake up. One of my favorites is Isaiah 60, verse one, arise. Why? Because the glory of the Lord has shone upon you. Are you kidding me? Today is this brilliant day for me to partner with God. That some of us, we need to grow young and get rid of this evil day thing that has lulled us into this kind of lethargy and sleep. No expectation that God can do great things anymore. Instead, we got to wake back up. Wait, I serve the same God of the book of Acts. I serve the same God of the Old Testament. Wait, I need to wake up, engage in this. That Ephesians 2.10 promises this, that there are good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. Today, there's good works. Anticipate them. I have a saying and I have it written at home because it's really been impacting me personally. And it's this, right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. So 1151, April 28th, 2019 is gone, it's in the record books. It counts forever now. I can't change it, I can't modify it, it's done. Right now counts forever. Am I making it count? I've just been asking that question to me over and over and over. Kids get it right. Ah, anticipation, excitement. So let me ask you some questions. Are you sleeping right now through really important things? Are you sleeping through your marriage? I think marriage is supposed to be this brilliant example of God's goodness on humanity. Genesis chapter two, read it. It's this brilliant culmination of all of creation crescendos in this marriage thing. Is your marriage just surviving or is it thriving? Don't sleep through it. Don't take your spouse for granted, right? How about Parenting. It's so easy for us as parents to be like, "Well, you know, I'll wait till I get to here. I'll wait till I." And I call it the witty syndrome. When I, then I. Guess what? It never comes. When I, then I never comes. So am I missing out on right now with my kids? Am I sleeping through that? Am I sleeping through the good news? I think believers every morning should wake up and preach the good news to themselves. I am a king, a queen of the king of the universe. I'm gonna rule and reign with him forever. He has bought me with a price. Therefore, today I'm gonna glorify him with his body. Man, you just wake up anticipating what God may do, right? Are we sleeping? Number one, are you unaware? Number two, are you unconscious? The second phrase, and arise from the dead. These are the people that have just one foot in the grave. I don't care how old you are. It's just they've got one foot in the grave. They're dead. Here's what I think the evil days does. It's like this, it's failure, it's disappointment, it's I haven't done this right, whatever it is, over and over stacked upon each other, week after week, month after month, eventually what it causes you and me to do is be like, I'm checking out, I'm checking out. I failed too many times, I can't do it, I blew it. Here's my best illustration. So I had a science teacher in the seventh grade And he had this aquarium, and in that aquarium, he had an Oscar. Remember those Oscar fish? They were like really, really popular, I think, when I was young. And they were like this aggressive fish from the Amazon that eats everything. Like it would eat just a very aggressive fish. But this Oscar fish cohabitated with all these other little fish that normally it would eat. Here's what he had done. He put a glass pane in the center of that aquarium, put all the fish that the Oscar would normally eat on one side and the Oscar on the other side, and this Oscar would see the fish over there and try to go get him and smack his head in that glass. And he did that over and over and over while this, this guy is feeding him new food all the time, just retraining him. And finally, after whatever it was, months and months, the Oscar just gave up. And that glass could be removed and those fish could swim right next to him. I think that's some people. Like life is just wham, wham, wham. Forget it. I don't even try anymore. Opportunity all around him. I'm not even trying anymore. That's the way evil days can cause us to live unconsciously. So there's a little text I will meditate on as I'm 47 now. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and it's all about aging. It's one of the most brilliant little poetic texts, I think, in the Bible. I love it. And it's, it's, and it's Solomon as an old guy just saying this. He says this really. He says, listen, young people, there's coming a day for you that you will wake up in the morning and you'll be like, oh, I woke up, (laughs) right? I wish I just died last night, that's coming. (laughs) And then he just goes on to say, here's here's what's gonna happen to you, right? Your brain is decaying. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. You will at some point in life be able to play hide and go seek with yourself. (laughs) It's coming. There will be an herb that you're trying to take to improve your memory, but you can't remember the name of it or where you put it. That's coming for you, right? So here's what he says. When you're young, chase your creator. Don't wait. Don't wait for that. Chase him now. Go for it. I talk to 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds. And what I tell them, hands down at some point in the conversation, go on the mission field. Why not? What about my career? Forget it. Go on the mission field. The best thing that ever happened to me in my life was going to Vanuatu and living there for a year. Best thing that ever happened to me. Expanded my view, able to see a different culture, see God work in that culture. It was brilliant. Go, do something. Oh Matt, I'm not young, I'm old. What about me? Okay, read today, Joshua 14. And you better write that down because you're old and you will forget. Okay, I know that now. I'm like, I'll remember that. Then I'm like, oh, what was that? It's a story about Caleb. And he has opportunity of the pick of the land. The promised land is open to him. Take your choice. Beachfront, lakefront, retirement living. And Caleb responds like this. He says, I'm 85 years old. And I'm as strong today as I was when I was 40. So give me the mountain with a giant on it. I love that. Not retirement, not beachfront, not ease. I want a challenge. I want a mission. I want to live. You know why? At 85, Caleb was still full of vigor because he still wanted mission. He still says, I want giants. I didn't come in the promised land to give up and do nothing. I came in the promised land to take out giants. Man, that's how you live big, right? Contrast that with Moses. Moses at 38 years of age thought, man, I'm ready. God, I'm ready. So he went out and tried to do it on his own. He knew that he was called to lead. He knew that he was called to do this. Tries it, murders a dude. Pharaoh's like mad at him. He has to take off and lives in the desert for 40 years by himself. So at 80, God comes in and says, now's your shot, man. Now's your chance. What does Moses say? Yeah. No, Moses says, no, thanks. I don't want to do it. Right? Starts making all these excuses. Well, I don't know who's sending me. So God says, well, here's my name, Yahweh. Well, um, Pharaoh, remember he's got a problem with me. All right, take your staff, throw it down. And then finally, Moses just says this. I have a speech impediment. I stutter when I talk and God gets mad at him. And God's like, who made your mouth, you stuttering fool? Get after it. That's what he says. It's a Matt Heverly translation, but it's essentially it. All right, what happened to Moses? He hit the glass too many times, gave up. And God says, uh-uh, get back in the game. Get back in the game. Go for it. We need more of that. We need more of that. The Bible says this that you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you. Do you have mission? If I was to ask you right now to pull out a piece of paper and write out, here's what God's asking me to do. Here's my mission. Would you have anything to write down? Because I think it's one of the best protections against being unconscious in your Christian walk. It's what keeps you young like a Kate, a Caleb. You have mission. Or are we just gonna retire and serve the gods of woods and irons. Is that what we're gonna go do? I hope not. I hope we're saying, I want mission. Because there are giants all over in Grants Pass. Big giant problems. And we need some David, some young people are like, that's a Goliath and I can take him. And we need some old people like Caleb saying, those are giants and I'm gonna take them. We need lots of that. That's how we change Grants Pass. Mission is how you stay from being unconscious. So you can be unaware, just sleeping. You can be unconscious, one step in the grave. And then lastly, you can be unwise, verse 15. Look carefully. Then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't walk unwisely. Be careful of that. So here's the one that maybe is the most important for some of us. Because if you just take the first two, it can run you ragged. You can keep adding more stuff and more stuff and more stuff until you're overwhelmed by it. But wise people know this. Wise people know what's most important. They know what, this is what I'm called to. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I think it's good to ask yourself this question. Do I do something regularly that's dumb? It's just stupid. Do I do that and quit? So if you know Bob Goff, he wrote a couple of books. They're good, Love Does, and Love Everybody Always. And Love Does, he has this practice. Every Thursday, he sits down and quits one thing. He looks over his past week, whatever he's been doing, and he just quits something. Every Thursday, he does that. I think that's so brilliant. How do you maintain fruitfulness? How do you maintain what you're supposed to, does anybody have fruit trees in here? What must you do every single year to a fruit tree? Prune it, you gotta get rid of some stuff, right? There are those branches that grow straight up. What are they called? Suckers. Don't be a sucker. (laughs) Right, They, 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 they produce no fruit. They suck all the life out of the tree. They're just for show, that's all they are. You gotta get rid of those things. You gotta evaluate yourself. This little term, look carefully. In another translation, it puts it like this. It puts it as, walk circumspectly. The word literally means this. You walk after yourself and you follow yourself. Like, okay, Matt, that's moronic. Why do you keep doing that? That's what you're asking yourself. That's unwise. Quit it, right? So I do this thing from time to time. I try to do it monthly. Sometimes it escapes me, but I try to monthly ask myself these questions broadly that help me to walk circumspectly, to like walk after myself and be like, Matt, how are you doing? Matt, how are you doing? And here they are. Question number one, I'll ask myself. What motivates me? If I was to look at my life, whatever I'm doing, what is my main motivation right now? Do you know that motive matters? Paul would say this. I can do all this great stuff. I can have all this great mission. I can have all this great stuff. But if I don't do it with love, it profits me nothing. Motive matters. So I need to evaluate what motivates me. Number two, I'll just write down, what are my regrets over this past month or season? And just write out my regrets. What brought me joy in this past season? And write them out. What is stressing me out? And write them out. Then number three, I'll say this. What's not good in my life, what's good in my life, and what's very good in my life. Because what I really want to do is start moving the not good stuff out of the way and focusing in on the very good stuff. The number four, how are my relationships? How's my relationship with Jesus? How's my relationship with my wife? How's my relationship with my kids? How's my relationship with The staff at Edgewater, with Edgewater, with me as a citizen of Grant's pass how are those relationships? And evaluate them. And then fifthly, I'll ask this. If I died, what would be left undone? Am I leaving my wife a bunch of stuff that she's gonna have to like figure out because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do? If I died, is there stuff left undone? Or has God asked me to do some stuff I just haven't done? Okay, I need to obey. And then lastly and sixthly, after all that, I just write down, what is my main thing? If I was to put my life on a pot and put it on the stove overnight and it boiled it all down, what's the main thing? And am I happy with that? And I'll do that. It's a way that I walk circumspectly. I follow my life and say, is this healthy? Am I doing well? Because I wanna live a wise life. I think God does too. The reason why this little text is here, the reason why Belshazzar is told, dude, Number, number is his God wants us to live lives that are wise, alive, conscious, and big. He wants that. I think we need to ask a lot more, like as we walk around town, as we see our communities, we need to be asking these questions, like, what if this happened in Grants Pass? What if this giant was taken out? And why not me? Why not me? If you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse nine, one of the coolest little verses, it says this, God's eyes run to and fro across the whole world looking for someone to show himself strong on their behalf. I just wanna raise my hand, me. Show yourself strong on my behalf. All of us should be raised around. Show yourself strong on my behalf. Stop with me, right? The John Knoxes, give me Scotland or I die. And guess what God did? Take Scotland. The John Careys, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. A shoe repair guy in London in the 1790s who sparks the greatest missionary movement in history. Who'd have thunk it? Because he just said, I'm gonna try, why not me? George Whitfield, the spark of the great awakening who said this, God give me souls or take my soul. If I'm not gonna be an evangelist and see people saved, then just take me home. I don't need to be here anymore. It's like that kind of attitude. They're living alive, brilliant lives, taking out giants. My hope is there's one person in here that I'm gonna to add to my list of heroes. The next name, John Knox, William Carey, George Whitfield, and boom. Because I think that's what God wants. And so maybe today, we're gonna come to the table. For you, the, the, the thing that needs to be pruned off, the sucker, maybe for you it's sin. But that will take your life. And so the, what we do as Christians is real simple. We don't try to modify it. We don't try to attack it. What we do is the Bible says you confess it, you repent of it, and he'll cleanse you from it. You say, Jesus, this thing is killing me. You confess it, and you eat and drink of him. And maybe for some of us, It's, I've been sleeping through some stuff. My marriage, parenting. I got this when I, then I thing. God, help me. And he will. Maybe it's mission. I don't have mission right now. I'm just kind of, just floundering. God, give me mission. Help me to know what you've caught, the good works that you prepared in advance for me. And you eat and drink. So we come to the table, spurred by this message, knowing that the answer is in him. And so Jesus today, We want to be good husbands. We want to follow you well as good husbands, as good wives, as good moms, as good dads, as good students, as good workers, as good citizens of Grants Pass. And we know in order to do that, we need your Holy Spirit. So may we come to the table this day In expectancy, we hold before us the elements of faith and power. And so for sin, may today, sin that has captured our hearts, may we be cleansed from that. For sleepiness, Lord, that has allowed us to kind of live lives that are unaware Would you revitalize us? For the unconsciousness of failure, Jesus, may we know that with you all things are made new. There's brand new opportunities. And may you give us hearts of wisdom so that we can number our days and live them alive, aware, and wise. And we ask this in your name. Amen.